Now, a recent opinion poll by Ipsos Mori, uh, the polling company, uh, revealed that British people are among the gloomiest people in the world. Uh, I don't know if you are <laughs> surprised by that or uh, uh, you, you said something of the reality of that. Well, the study revealed that two in five people in Britain are pessimistic, utterly pessimistic about the future. Uh, we are particularly worried for our safety in life and we are worried also particularly for our health, uh, our health care in particular. We, I guess we have challenges with the NHS or wherever we get looked after, but that really worries us, our health in general. And according to Ipsos, uh, it turns out that the current British generation is also gloomier than previous generations. Uh, it seems that we are actually even more gloomy, more pessimistic about life than previous generations were. Well, I didn't live in the previous generation, whatever that was. And so I will leave you to decide on whether Ipsos have got their analysis correct and uh, indeed we are gloomier than we have ever been. Whatever you think of that, what is certainly true uh, is that all of us from time to time uh, face situations that make it difficult for us as people to have any reason to rejoice. Many of us find ourselves in circumstances that make rejoicing in life, to be joyful, a very difficult concept and idea or reality to get our heads around. Maybe this morning you are going through a sustained period of physical or mental health illness. And it has left you feeling a bit like the children of Israel under Sisera. It has left you feeling a bit trapped. And you feel trapped and you don't know where to turn. Uh, perhaps your situation uh, is different. Maybe it's just an issue or relationship at home or at work that has left you, or even at school that has left you feeling anxious for the future. Or maybe it's not so much of a, pro a problem you are facing. It's simply the case that you had, in the past, set goals for your personal life. There were some things you really wanted to achieve in life. And it turns out they have not really happened. They have, life has not turned out as you expected. And that, of course, can leave us feeling like a failure in life. It can rob us of that joy that we long for. There are many situations that leave us feeling empty. And what we want to ask today is, what does the Bible have to say about how we respond to such circumstances? Now, of course, we are currently going through Judges. And we saw last week that this is exactly how the nation of Israel felt at the start. Look at Judges chapter 4, verse 3. Do you remember those when we read that? The condition the children of Israel were under. It says, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Uh, it says, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for, he, for help, for he, that is Sisera, had 900 chariots of iron. And he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. And if you were here last week, you remember that the children of Israel were living under what? Severe oppression. But something remarkable happens towards the end of Judges 4. God gives them victory over their enemies. Their enemies are completely destroyed. Barak leads the 10,000 men on Mount Tabor and charges down at the bottom of the Kishon River. 
uh, at the, in the valley there in the Jezreel, and God defeats their enemy. And in the evening, we saw also how Sisera got away, but God did not really let him get away because, of course, uh, jail stepped in and crushed Sisera's head, so to speak. And God gave them victory. So today, what we're doing is we're turning now to Judges 5. We'll see that the mood of the people has changed. They were oppressed in Judges 4, but now they are rejoicing at what God has done for them. And this rejoicing of Israel teaches us an important lesson that I want us to remember this morning. The lesson is this. Those who experience deliverance by the God of Israel always rejoice. Those who experience deliverance by the God of Israel always rejoice. And the good news this morning is that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have repented and come to faith in Christ, you know this God of Israel. And so you have every reason to rejoice today. So this morning I just want to share three reasons why you should rejoice. Three reasons why you should be joyful if you are trusting in God. And at the end, I'll give you two practical directions on how to rejoice. So three reasons for why we should rejoice and two practical directions from Judges 5 on how we should actually rejoice in practice. The first reason we should rejoice, and it is in front of your outlines, is that we should rejoice because we are free. We should rejoice because we are free. We have been freed by God. George Washington once said, Freedom is a light for which many men and women have died in darkness. There is no one here in this room who does not long to live free in life. All of us long to live free lives. And so it is not a surprise here that as soon as God frees the people of Israel from their oppression of Jerbin, oppression from Jerbin and Sisera, what do they do? They start rejoicing. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. This one tells us, Then sang Deborah and Barak the son of Obinoam on that day. And they are singing. The singing is the highest expression of joy. So they are singing. Why are they singing? Because on that day, God has crushed Sisera and Jerbin. He has given them freedom. They are rejoicing because they remember how terrible life used to be under the Canaanite military dictatorship. Look how life used to be for them, as they remember in verse 6. In the days of Shamgar, we, we, we looked at Shamgar some months ago, the son of Anath, in the days of jail, the highways were abandoned. The travelers kept to the byways. And the picture there is that you know, King Jabin had taken away all their weapons. He had completely disarmed them. Yeah, because it tells us in verse 7, the villages ceased in Israel, they ceased to be until I arose as a mother in Israel. And they had completely taken away their weapons, they had suffocated all social and economic life. They, they couldn't venture outside. They couldn't go to the shops and do the things they wanted to. They couldn't do farming. They couldn't do any of that because the oppression was very, very difficult. It's like Kim Jong, we said last week. It's like living under Kim Jong, even worse than Kim Jong's North Korea. No freedom. They couldn't do anything that they wanted to do. 
But God did something amazing, isn't it? He raised up Deborah as their leader. Look at verse 7. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose, I, Deborah, as a, as a mother in Israel. Deborah arose, we, we looked at that in chapter 4, as God raised up Deborah as a prophetess. And she nurses them like a mother back into trusting God. And we see that as God raised up Deborah, he also raised up Barak and other commanders to rise up against Jabin. Look at verse 2 of chapter 5. God summoned these leaders to action, and verse 2 tells us that the leaders took the lead in Israel. Isn't it amazing when leaders take lead? They take lead in Israel, and the people offer themselves willingly Bless the Lord, he tells us. And therefore, we also see uh, in verse 9, uh, Deborah sings again, My heart goes out to the commanders, goes out to the commanders of Israel who offer themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord, she says. She's celebrating. Verse 11, to the sound of the musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord. The, notice this, the righteous triumphs of these villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Everybody who offered themselves to this amazing uh, revolt against Sisera and Jerbin. Look at verse 13. And the people all join in in verse 13. Look at this. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. You can just imagine this battalion as people are being summoned now to rise up against Jerbin. And this battalion, battalion of troops in verse 13 made up of villages rising against, uh, against um, Jerbin and Sisera. He says, then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. And then she says, he's from Ephraim. Their root, they march down into the valley, following you, Benjamin. These are the tribes of Israel. With your kinsmen from Machia, march down. The commanders from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah and Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley they rushed. It's one of those medieval movies when you watch them, when, you know, they're all these nice, you know, brave type uh, thing is what we're being shown here. Everybody's gathered. They are ready to go for it. And, of course, they went for it against Jervin at the end, and they completely crushed him after Sisera had completely been destroyed by Barak and the 10,000. And, you know, when they remember how life used to be, and they now think of the freedom that they have, they cannot help but sing out loud to the Lord and to each other. Look at verse 10. Tell it out, you ride on white donkeys. You sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way, to the sound of the musicians at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of the villages. Then down to the gates march the people of the... And look at this, verse 12. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Obinoam. That is their response to this great victory God has given them. And as we saw last week, God's victory in Judges 4 points forward to our victory we have received in Jesus. Jesus is our Barak who charged against our enemies on the cross and laid down his life for our sins. We have enjoyed victory in Christ. Friends, before we met Jesus, we were living in darkness. 
We were slaves to Satan. We were under God's judgment. Isn't that what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 3? Look, look with me at Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, Paul says, following the, the, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That is how we were before we met Jesus. Now, one of the survivors of the Greenfield Tower uh, disaster is Christos Fairbairn. You may have seen him on TV a number of times. He was on the 15th floor when the fire started. Uh, he was watching TV at 12.45 a.m. Then smoke starts coming into the flat, and he, he quickly calls the fire services. They tell him, well, get out there, but make sure you wrap yourself in a wet blanket. So he wraps his wet blankets around him, and he's there on the 15th floor, and he, he starts making his way down. And he's stumbling in the mix of darkness and flames of fire as he goes down there. But as soon as he gets to the fourth floor, is completely choked. Uh, the, smoking, the, the smoke that's coming out is just too much for him. And so he fends and collapses on the fourth floor. But then just at that moment he collapses. He says a firefighter grabbed his hands at that precise moment. He would have died. But the firefighter at that moment as he collapses, grabbed his hands. He is saved and of course he fully recovers in hospital. And as I thought about his story, it reminded me that this is the picture of what Jesus has done for us. At the moment when we were most helpless, completely choked and no help, Jesus reached out to us through his nailed hands through the cross and he lifted us out of this slavery and danger we were in. He lifted us out from that danger when we were heading to hell, engulfed almost by flames of fire. Jesus reached out to us and saved us. And if you are trusting in Jesus this morning, you have enjoyed such freedom. You are free from sin, free from death, and free from hell, from the power of hell forever. So you have every reason to rejoice, isn't it? You have every reason to rejoice this morning, regardless of any situation you are in. Because you are free. You are free. Christos Fairburn lost everything after the fire. But listen to what he says about his life when he was interviewed after being saved. He says, life is so short. I know I will see my family um, and friends more now. I will appreciate life more. I shouldn't be here today, but I am. And I'm so thankful for that. You see how that saving moment completely changes him. He realizes that he was there, almost dead. And God, has, God, I guess, has saved him. But he's very thankful for having life and being able to now enjoy it more with his friends and being thankful for that. Friends, what more you this morning?
What more you who has been saved from the deadly flames of hell? God has set you free in Jesus. So you have every reason to rejoice, regardless of any situation you are facing. So that's reason number one, you should rejoice, because what? We are free. The second reason we should rejoice is what? Because we are friends of God. We are friends of God. Now, they say, in prosperity, our friends know us. In adversity, we know our friends. Isn't that what they say? In prosperity, our friends know us. But in adversity, we know who's really our friend, don't we? When we're going through trouble. (laughs) Well, if that is true, then our God is a true friend indeed. Because we see here that when life was going well for the children of Israel, they had abandoned friendship with God. And they had turned to what? Lifeless idols. But soon they found, as we all do in our lives, we find that these idols, these sins that we depend on and look to to such fires, they are not very reliable friends. Uh, they are there for a while, but when it comes to the crunch, we, we, there are things we cannot depend on. And that's what they found. They found that these idols only led them to one place, into the slavery of Jerbin and Sisera. But God is such a true friend. We expect him that he would have abandoned them, but he didn't. When they cried out to him, he not only rescued them from their slavery, do you know what else he did? He restored their friendship. Look at verse 31, all the way to the bottom. Look what Deborah says about their relationship with God now at the bottom. She says this, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his mind. And then we are told, and the land had rest for 40 years. In verse 31 there, Deborah pictures their friendship with God almost like the sun rising in its might. They are now strong. They are now confident. They are now enjoying God's friendship. They are now living at the heart of his power. And because they are friends of God now, they are now able to enjoy rest. They are living under the loving care of God. Did you know friendship with God always produces rest. And you know what's amazing there? What's amazing there is what the word rest means here. When Deborah, when, when he says, and the land had rest for 40 years, the word for rest there is shalom. And it means to enjoy peace and calm. You can picture now that God has now become their friend and there is rest throughout the land of Canaan. The entire country is safe from all enemies. War has stopped. Communities are flourishing. Farming has resumed. People are sitting out in the sun. Relationships that have been fractured under Jerbin and Sisera's tyrannical reign are now being restored. People can go outside and enjoy the sun and they can do what they like to do. They can worship God freely, come to church as it were, and bow down to the Lord and life is peaceful. This is what the Bible calls shalom. This shalom is what God always gracious planned for his people in Canaan. You can look that up in Deuteronomy 12, verse 8 to 10. But Israel's rebellion prevented this rest uh, because they had rebelled against God. But now that 
God has got rid of their enemies. Now that they have repented, they've come to him. So actually, frankly, they haven't even yet repented. But God has intervened by his grace, as we'll see in a moment. They are now again friends of God. They are enjoying life with God forever. In this case for them, lasting 40 years. Friends, I just want to remind you this morning that if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, if you have genuinely been born again, you have this amazing friendship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, John 15, verse 15, a verse all of us should know by heart. What does it say? Does anyone know what John 15, verse 15 says? It says this, we should know this by heart. No longer do I call you servants, for the servants... For the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. God is now your friend in Christ. Friends, being a follower of Jesus is different from other religions. Our faith in Jesus is living. It is personal. It is dynamic. It is intimate relationship with God. God lives within the walls of your heart. And you are now his friend. God lives in you and you live in God. And he talks to you through his word. He ministers to your heart through his spirit. You pray to him and he hears every prayer you bring to him. And he delights in answering. And the amazing thing is that God has committed to look after your every need forever. I like to say that being in a relationship with God is like living in a fully paired permanent hotel. And you know I love good hotels. I've said this before whenever we're going somewhere. I pick the hotel, my wife can pick where we're going. Because I love staying in a good hotel. And it's like that, really. Living in a fully permanent hotel under God. Because you see what? God, with God you have access to all his love. To all his care. And he's offering every day to refresh and equip you. Of course, this is not to say we will never feel grief or loss. We will because the world of Christ is, a, is taking up the crucified life. But even in the middle of the grief and affliction that we experience for Christ, it is driven by our joy for the Lord. And even in that moment, we know we are not alone. If we are going through affliction, God is with us as our friend. And that is enough. For us. Because if you have God, what else do you need? Maybe you are currently feeling very lonely. I'm told actually, particularly above the, once you reach the age of 70, according to the statisticians, we are told at least three out of ten elderly people are going through severe loneliness. And in the country, the stats tell us one in ten people, one ten of us here, is feeling extremely lonely. Maybe that is you. No one is immune from feeling loneliness. But listen, when we feel like that, if we are followers of Jesus, we must remember that being lonely, being alone rather, does not mean we are lonely. Because in Christ, we may be physically alone, but we are always with the Lord. Jesus is our Emmanuel. He is God with us. So we are never alone. And the Bible tells us that God is not just a friend for life. God is a friend for all eternity. So if you are in Jesus again, you have every reason to rejoice. That's reason number two. 
Reason number one, you should rejoice is you are free. Reason number two, you should rejoice is what? You are a friend of God. And here is the final reason you should rejoice. It's in your outline. The final reason you should rejoice is that you are favored by God. We have favor with God. Now, a story is told of a teenager. You may have heard this story before. Of a teenager who did not want to be seen in public with her mother. And the reason she didn't want to be seen in public with her mother is because her mother had very disfigured hands. And she had experienced some tragedy that had left her completely disfigured. And you know, teenagers are teenagers, isn't it? Yeah. Think about their street cred and other things. And I didn't just want to be seen. She didn't want to be seen with her mother in public like that. Uh, so one day, her mother takes her shopping, and uh, the mother reaches out her hand to, uh, to the cashier to pay for something. But the reaction of this cashier was shocking. The cashier looks at her hand, and she's a bit horrified by that. She's completely stunned at what she's looking at. And so. When the girl comes home with her man, she's crying all the way back because she's now even completely embarrassed by her mother. She, she, she just wants to get home and, you know, as, 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 as little girls, I guess, teenagers do, and she doesn't want to be ever embarrassed by her mom like she just experienced. And so, of course, they get home, and the mother is very hurt by what's happened. But being a mother, of course, she knows her daughter very well, so she waits for an hour. And then she goes to see her daughter in her room after an hour. And she tells her for the first time just how she got disfigured. And she says, you see, when you were a baby, I woke up to a burning house. Your room was an inferno. Uh, flames were everywhere. I could have gotten out of the front door, but... I decided not to. I said, I'd rather die with you than leave you here to die alone. So I churched through the fire. I ran through the fire. And I wrapped my hands around you. Then I went back through the flames. And with my, my hands on fire, we made our way to safety. When I got outside on the lawn, the pain was so agonizing. But when I looked at you, all I could do was rejoice that the flames had not touched you. They had touched me instead. And of course, the girl is hearing this story for the first time. And what does she do? She's completely stunned. She now looks at her mother through new eyes. And she starts weeping in shame. But she's also weeping in joy. Because she now realizes just how much her mother loves her. She's so grateful for this undeserved love for her mother. That those disfigured hands that she, she tried to you know, be embarrassed of, she's now taking all of them and she's kissing them because there she sees what it cost her, how much love that has been poured over her. And this story is similar to what is happening to the people of Israel in Judges 5 as they rejoice. Because they are like the little girl in the story, aren't they? They have been horrible to God. And now they realize that all along he loved them. They realize now that they do not deserve his love and favor towards them. Now we already know from Judges 4 that the people had abandoned God and turned to idols, don't we? And Deborah repeats that in verse 8. Look at verse 8. 
It reminds us that they are turned to idols in verse 8. It says, when new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. What Deborah is saying is that it is their idolatry that brought about this enslavement. And we can see that even though, despite God coming to their help, not all of them joined in. And we'll look at those verses more, but look at verse 15 to verse 17. When the call came to help, it says, towards the end of verse 15, among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. They were not interested. We'll look at this in two weeks' time. Verse 16, why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? They're more interested in farming. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings, he says, of heart. Gilead stayed among the Jordan and Dan. Why did you stay in the ships? They are interested in doing trade. Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landing. Zebulun, we are told in contrast, is a people who risked their lives to death. But the general picture we get there is that despite God coming to their help, many of them were not interested at all. And Deborah realizes that this victory has been achieved without people even being changed in their hearts. God has moved out of the abundance of his grace and he has saved them. I want to suggest to you this morning, friends, that rejoicing always starts when we realize that how much God has done for us in Jesus. When we realize that we don't deserve God at all and it has come to us by his grace. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 10 says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of work. It's not because of anything that you have done so that no one may boast. For what? We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want to suggest to you this morning that you struggle to rejoice in your circumstances because the wonder of God's grace to you has not fully captured and wrapped itself around you. You struggle to rejoice because you forget that you don't deserve anything at all. You forget that God has set you free and made you his friend. You forget that you are now the apple of God's eye. I want to suggest to you that you have every reason to rejoice, regardless of what situation you're in. So how do we go about rejoicing? How do we rejoice? Well, two quick practical directions I just want to give you to help you rejoice from this passage. The first application is start remembering. Start remembering. You rejoice... You don't rejoice because you forget. So what you need to do is you need to do what they are doing. Because this song is essentially an act of remembering and meditation on what God has achieved for them. And you need to start doing that every day. Make it a daily habit to reflect on what God has done for you in Jesus. And I want to suggest that each week, set aside perhaps just an hour to reflect on all that God has achieved for you in Jesus and what God has been doing in the past week. So if you've come in my study in there, you see that I have a whiteboard there where I write glimpses of grace. 
I write that because I have a tendency to forget. So if I see something good happening, I just write it down that I'm thankful for. And answered prayer. Maybe I prayed for one person. And maybe they turn up to church. And I thank God for that. Because we have a tendency to forget. But what we should be remembering especially is all that Jesus has done through the cross. So make it a daily habit to do that. That's the first application. And if you are stuck on that, there's a book by C.J. Mahani at the, um, at the book table there. That explains the gospel. And it's a daily reminder of all that God has achieved for you. The second application is the final application for you this morning. It's a strange one, perhaps, to some of you. Start singing. Start singing. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Do not forget that Judges 5 is a song. Why is it a song? Uh, because singing is a natural and proper response to victory. Uh, when, when, when people win a football match, what do they do? They sing, they shout. It's actually interesting enough, even when they are losing, they are still singing. But, so, so singing is a natural response. And in the same way, in the Bible, have you noticed in the Bible that whenever God delivers his people, they are always singing? The singing starts in Exodus 15, doesn't it? After God delivers the people against Pharaoh in Exodus 14. And it goes all the way to Revelation 5 when we sing a new song in Revelation chapter 5. It carries on actually, I think, until Revelation 19 when the angels are singing in heaven. Whenever people experience victory, they rejoice. And in the middle of the Bible is something that is very big. It's the largest book in the whole Bible. What is it? It's the Psalms, isn't it? 150 songs. That is the Old Testament people's hymn book, so to speak. They rejoice because they have experienced God's victory. So I want to suggest to you this morning that singing is a natural response to all that you have received in Christ. Because singing is one of the highest expressions of joy. So start singing. Learn to sing to God all the time where you are. And I mean opening your mouth and your lungs singing. Uh, sing loud at church. I sing to God in the car. Sing in the garden when you're out there. Sing out loud in the kitchen. And when you sing, you should do more than just open your lips and lines, you, should, you know, so to speak. You should sing with your heart and mind at what God has done for you in Jesus. Because you have more reason to sing than those guys singing at football matches. Because you have true freedom. True friendship with the sovereign God of the universe. In Jesus you have received grace upon grace, favor upon favor. And that is more than enough for us to rejoice in any situation. As Paul says, rejoice. And again I say, rejoice. Amen.